The title of this morning's sermon is Christ Our Lively Hope. Christ Our Lively Hope. And so we're going to take that term from 1 Peter um, chapter 1, verse 3. I'm going to read verses 3 through uh, verse 6, a portion of verse 6. So let's begin there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time wherein ye greatly rejoice. And all God's people said, Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that Thou hast given us this lively hope. Thou hast poured out Thy Spirit, placed it in our heart, that we might look to Thee for all things and appreciate everything that Thou hast done for us and what Thou hast yet reserved for us in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everything that we receive in terms of the promises that we receive from the Lord are rooted in um, the verse that precedes this, verse 2 here. I'll pick it up in verse 1. Peter, an apostle unto Jesus Christ, to the strangers, and that would be to believers because we are strangers and pilgrims in this earth, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Benthia. In other words, scattered throughout the world. These are the elect people, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, Through sanctification of the Spirit, they are set apart by the Spirit of God, um, God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Because Jesus was obedient, obedient even unto the death of the cross, that he died and he bled for us, we therefore have all of these wonderful blessings that are associated with the work of Christ, including this lively hope. And that is what I want to speak about um, today. The Christians have this lively hope for a couple of reasons. Uh, The most um, important reason or the most prominent reason or the uh, the reason that it's it's most true in us is because God has put his witness in our heart. The Spirit of God witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. So we have this wonderful witness uh, within us. But one of the things that we should appreciate is that there are saints in other periods of time that also had this lively hope, had this appreciation of what Christ would accomplish um, for them, Christ their Redeemer. And one such verse that I want us to look at is Job chapter 19. In Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, you know that Job was greatly afflicted. He was afflicted in so much as he lost his children, he lost all of his uh, material wealth, and he lost his health. Um, But what he never lost was his relationship with the Lord. And the Lord does say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so this hope also was in Job's heart. In verse 25, Job says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he, the Redeemer, shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. In other words, while on the bed of affliction, having every expectation that he was going to go to the grave, greatly afflicted in the flesh, he knew that he would be resurrected again with a new body and a new flesh, and he would see his Redeemer 
face to face. And the Redeemer, of course, we know is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, in Isaiah 44, 6, the Lord identifies himself, the God, as our Redeemer. In verse 6 of um, Isaiah 44, it says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, he's the Redeemer of Israel, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and am and I am the last. What does the Lord say of himself in Revelation 1.18? That he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and he is the ending. He is the author and finisher of our faith. What is set before us here is speaking of Christ. And it says of him, and besides me, there is no God. So God is our Redeemer. And so Job appreciates that he will stand before his God. He will stand before his Redeemer, whom he shall see with his own eyes in his own flesh. And he shall appreciate all that the Lord has done for him. He will be resurrected from this. So God has set these wonderful promises before us all throughout the scripture. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Lord is preaching the gospel here uh, in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. I've preached it to you, you've received it, you've heard it, the Lord has impressed it upon your heart. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. It's another way of saying that salvation is by faith. So keep it in your heart, and God will keep it there. Um, Verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. The gospel was given to the Apostle Paul, and he does like we do. We go out into the world and we preach the gospel. We preach that which we have received of the Lord. How that Christ died for our sins. How did he die? According to the scriptures. Christ died according to the scriptures. In verse 4, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So the Lord has set these wonderful um, things before us in the scriptures that we, he would appreciate, that we would appreciate, that all that took place, took place according to the scriptures. And we see in the, in the book of Luke that our deacon read for us this morning that Christ himself, while he was walking with them, made reference to the scripture. And so we see that they're walking on the road to Emmaus. In verse 15, it says, and they're reasoning together. They're they're trying to figure out what's happened here. You know, there was supposed to be a body in the grave. Everybody saw the Lord crucified. It was a very public execution. It was uh, very public in so much as that he was taken down from the cross dead. You know, the the priests went before Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. I should say, um, Joseph of Arimathea went there. But the uh, scribes and the Pharisees went before Pilate and said, hey, we need to seal up the tomb. He's dead. We need to make sure he stays in the tomb. So it was publicly acknowledged that, that he was dead. And then when they came to the tomb, of course, on the third day, or after the third day, they came Sunday morning, the tomb was empty. That was very public. So God has set these things before us here, and we see that these two disciples are reasoning with themselves, like, hey, what happened here? I, I don't understand it, even though the Lord had set this forth before them. So down in verse 25, he says, the Lord speaking here, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all, not some of what the scriptures have said, not some of what the prophets have said, but all that the prophets have spoken. And then it says in verse 27, it says, beginning at Moses, that would be Genesis 1.1, Beginning in, in with uh, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, 
he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Down in verse 44, these are the words Jesus says that I spake unto you while I was yet with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms about what? Concerning me. Jesus says that. Search the scripture for in them you think you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me that you might have life. Everything in the Bible is teaching us one way or another about Christ and what he has done for his elect. So beginning all the way back in Genesis 15, actually this begins in Genesis 1.1, but we'll just go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 15, where the Lord is preaching the gospel here. And we know that in Romans it says that, you know, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is the first person that came into this um, creation with man to preach the gospel. And he does that in verse 15, Genesis chapter 3. He says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shall bruise his heel. So he's setting up here before us here that his heel is going to be bruised. But as our deacon read for us in uh, Hebrews chapter 2 about overcoming sin and death, the Lord taking on, uh, taking on the seed of Abraham, the Lord is going to bruise the head of the serpent. He's going to destroy the devil and the works of the devil. So he sets that before us here right here in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And then you get to Genesis 4, and we have the offering between um, Abel and his brother um, Cain. And we can appreciate that one offering is acceptable unto the Lord and one is not. The one that involves a blood sacrifice, that one is acceptable because the Lord is setting before us here, and then certainly all throughout Leviticus, particularly the first seven chapters, this idea of the substitutionary principle of, um, of the offering, which of Christ will be. He will be our substitute. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we appreciate that it says, The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And hence, you have to have an offering. So Abel offers up the firstlings of his flock, a picture of Christ, just as the God the Father will offer up Jesus, the Lamb of God. We see this substitutionary principle. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's going to be the substitution, and everything in here is pointing to, uh, to that very thing. So in verse 21, what does the Lord do to Adam and his wife who have sinned? Is the Lord did make, the Lord God make coats of skins, and he clothed them. So it's not like he made a coat of skin, set it over there on the rack, and said, go pick one, you know, that fits. He made one exclusively and specifically for each one of them, and it says that he clothed him. Now, if you look into the Hebrew there, you'll appreciate that the coat of skin he made for them covered them from the neck all the way down to the feet, very much like the priestly garments, the Lord endeavoring to cover them um, completely. You recall that when Jesus is on the cross and his garments are have been taken from him, lots are cast for them, but they uh, specifically make a reference here about an in the Gospel of John, about how one of his garments was seamless and that they not divide that one. Um, they drew lots for that, and, of course, somebody uh, was the um, recipient of that. They were clothed with the garment that Christ himself was wearing. This is a picture of the righteousness of Christ being imputed to an individual. In Revelation 19.9, it speaks about how the fine white linen is the righteousness of the saints. So this helps us appreciate in typology and shadow and allegory about what the Lord is going to do. In Isaiah 61.10, it says that we are clothed with the garments of salvation, with the robe of righteousness. So that's one of the things that clothing 
represents is it represents righteousness. It represents the, uh, the glory of God when clothed upon by God himself. Well, over in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve endeavored to clothe themselves um, with garments they made from fig leaves, which, of course, did not involve the shedding of blood, and it represents the works of man's hands. And uh, we appreciate that also from Isaiah 64, 6, where it says that all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. So last week, when we read about and talked about Jesus riding down the Mount of Olives, what did people do with their clothing? but cast them on the ground. And the Lord stepped on them, on the donkey, all the way down when he went into the temple. That represents our righteousness. Is, uh, there are all his filthy um, rags. And the, uh, the Bible speaks about, in Revelation 16, 15, about how removing the garments of an individual reveals their sin. And so we need to be clothed upon, we need to be covered up with the righteousness of, um, of Christ. So... Right in the very beginning of the Bible, beginning with Moses, as the Lord has said, he has set the gospel um, before us. Now, the timing of all of this is very interesting and important because the Lord didn't leave this, uh, didn't make that a mystery with respect to when he would deal with this issue of sin. And we should appreciate that the um, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the cross of Christ, and the resurrection uh, represents the turning point in the entire history of, um, of the cosmos. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God, taketh away the sin of the world. Sin meaning inclusive. He's dealing with the issue of sin in man. He's dealing with all of the consequences of sin in terms of how it has affected creation. Because it has affected creation and it has ruined it in every sense of the word. In Romans chapter 8 verse 22, it talks about how the whole creation groaneth and travaileth together in pain until the redemption of these saints, until the revelation of, of these saints, that till the time that the Lord comes and makes everything new, um, and which he is going to do. He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. So everything revolves around this. So it's very important for us to appreciate what the Lord has accomplished. And it's important for us to appreciate that it's all consistent with the gospel that he set before us beginning in, in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, um, the Lord says that to everything there is a season. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. Everything that the Lord does is for the good of the saints, to those that love the Lord, to those who are chosen according to his purpose. There's a purpose behind everything that God is doing. And when you look out into the world... Most people can't fathom that. They don't appreciate that everything is working together for the good of the saints. And as a result of that, they are in fear. Um, there was an article in a recent newspaper that said that um, anxiety was up 300% and depression was up 400%. So as people are looking at things that are going on in the world and they're not Christians, they have no hope. They do not appreciate not only that everything is working uh, to the good of the saint but also that there's an end in view. God is taking things um, to a point where he's going to destroy the world, having brought in the last of his elect and create a new heaven and a new earth. So in verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 3, it says there is a time to be born and a time to die. There was a time for Christ to be born and a time for Christ to die. He could not have died had he not been born, and so these two are certainly related to each other. But which of the two is more important? His death, burial, and resurrection, a time to be born 
again. And that there's a time for the saint to die to himself and a time to be born again um, from above. So the Lord has set this forth before us here and he tells us in Galatians 4.4 that when the fullness of time was come, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son uh, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were in bondage to the law. So God had a time in mind from the very beginning. Jesus, you know, is the uh, Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. Everything was laid out with respect to the redemption of men. Now, interestingly enough, in Daniel chapter 9, he starts the clock and he tells us exactly when the cross is going to come. So there's some very interesting verses here in Daniel chapter 9 um, that we would appreciate with respect to the timing. Now, Daniel chapter 9 should come with a spoiler alert because it tells everybody here when it's going to happen and what the Lord is going to accomplish. So um, there should be no anxiety when you're reading the Gospels as to whether or not he's actually going to make it to the cross. And there ought not to be no, any anxiety with respect to what he's going to accomplish, whether or not he's going to be successful, and what the results are going to be. Daniel chapter 9 lays it all out. Now, Daniel chapter 9 opens with Daniel um, praying on the behalf of his, uh, his people. And in verse 2 of Daniel chapter 9, it says here that in the first reign, first of his reign, speaking of um, Arjuris, that Daniel understood by the books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So Daniel is reading his Bible like we all should do, and he's praying that God will help him understand what has been written. But he understands what's written in Jeremiah, that 70 years has been set for the desolation of Jerusalem. So the Babylonians came to Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and for 70 years they were in exile. But if you read the details of your Bible, you know that there were a couple of three occasions when the Babylonians came and took people away, and there was a couple of three times when the um, Hebrews came back. So naturally, you would want to know which are the ones the Lord is referring to here in Daniel chapter 9. What does it mean to rebuild the city, to rebuild the walls, to set up the streets? What, is, what does that really mean? What is in view there? And the Bible ever sets before us two cities, and those two cities are both named Jerusalem. One is the earthly Jerusalem, and one is the heavenly Jerusalem. And so in verses 23 through 25, we can appreciate that uh, Daniel is praying for his people. He's praying for his people. And that's certainly very consistent with what the Lord does in John chapter 17. We've read that. Jesus says, I pray for these here. Jesus prays for the disciples that are with him in John 17. Judas is not with him. Jesus is not praying for Judas. And then over in verse 20 of uh, John chapter 17, he says, And I pray for those that will believe on their testimony. So God, uh, Jesus in John 17, who is God, is praying for the elect. Daniel, a type of Christ here, is doing the same thing. He's confessing the sins of his people, and he's actually owning them in the context as a type of Christ that our sins are imputed to Christ. Now, Having done that, he's supplicating the Lord, and Gabriel comes to him to give him understanding of the vision. In verse 23 of Daniel chapter 9, he says, At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee. The commandment came from God that Gabriel would come forth, for thou art greatly beloved, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. 
Let me share this with you. All saints are greatly beloved. And if we get on our knees and petition the Lord and ask him to open his word to us, he opens it. It takes time. There's a lot to study. But he loves us and he opens his word to us. We are greatly beloved. And so in the context here, you'll find that uh, Gabriel is a type of the Holy Ghost. He's bringing understanding. So the clock starts here, as he says in verse 24. Seventy weeks. I'll just stop there for a minute. A week, how long is a week? Well, is it seven days or is it seven years? Well, the Bible tells us that in the Hebrew there, the, week, the word week there actually means sevens. Seventy-sevens are determined. And you can read Genesis chapter 29, verse 27. I did not make a reference there, I don't think, but nevertheless, seventy-sevens are set forth. It is said that Jacob worked um, a week for his wife. Well, we know that he worked seven years. So what is setting forth before here? It says 77. 70 um, periods of, of seven years are determined upon thy people. So who's in view here? God's elect. And upon thy holy city. What's the holy city? Well, is it the earthly Jerusalem uh, that is in bondage this day, which it says in Galatians chapter um, Four, verse 26, or is it the heavenly Jerusalem? That's made reference to in uh, Galatians 4.26. The earthly Jerusalem, I think, is 4.23. The heavenly Jerusalem, which is above, the mother of us all, and free. So there's two Jerusalems in view here. And so when you read the scriptures, oftentimes they'll have two meanings. One is an earthly meaning, a secular meaning, and one is a heavenly or spiritual meaning. So because this has to do with thy people, it has to do with the elect. And has to do with the Messiah. Obviously, what we're more interested in would be the spiritual meaning that's set uh, before us here. Revelation 21.10 speaks of the holy Jerusalem, the city that comes down from heaven. So there, um, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, and the few verses that follow, we uh, might get there and read those in a minute, helps us to appreciate that there is a Jerusalem that applies to the elect of God. So having set that before us here, so he says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to do what? To finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Obviously, what is in view here? It's Christ and his cross. And the holy city that's in view is the holy Jerusalem, the city from above. So he says, know ye therefore, in verse 25, he's going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with righteousness. He's going to talk about, he's going to um, make an end to this uh, process of sin. He's going to make reconciliation. That would be between God and man and man and God. So all of these things are going to be dealt with. Verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. A commandment is going to be given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Which Jerusalem is going to be restored and rebuilt? Is it going to be the earthly one or is it going to be the heavenly one? Which one is in view here? It's the heavenly one. This all has to do with the Messiah. He says from the commandment given to um, restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the prince, so the prince and the Messiah are the same individuals here, shall be seven weeks or seven years, uh, seven sevens, and threescore and two weeks or sevens. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. 
So everybody thinks in their head, okay, I'm looking for a place in the Bible where they're going to build a wall and maybe have some trouble building the wall. So they all run to Ezra and Nehemiah, and, they, and there's an occasion there where it speaks about how they were building the wall, and they had like one hand on their weapons to defend it against the people that would come and prevent them from doing it. But is there again, is there something else in view here? Well, what is a wall? And what does a wall have to do with? The Lord speaks about a man who cannot contain his spirit like a city without walls. So walls have to do with, um, with the um, ability to contain oneself, to rein in the, uh, the inner man or the old man, as opposed to physical walls of a physical city. So in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 1, the Lord helps us to appreciate what's set before us here in terms of a wall. In Isaiah 26, 1, I'm going to turn there. In Isaiah 26, uh, verse 1 and 2, the Lord says... And that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and for bulwarks. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. So this, this um, compassing about of a man in terms of protecting him, in terms of regeneration, um, it, the salvation is like a wall that is around that individual. Verse 2, open up. Open ye the gates, that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. Well, who would the righteous nation be? It's a nation of Christian. It's a nation of the elect. It's the nation of the regenerated people. And God is himself is going to open up the gates. We know that he himself is the door. And uh, the righteous are going to enter in um, through the truth, which is Christ. So again, salvation here is likened unto walls. Um, in Isaiah 60, verse 18 the Lord is going to say something that helps us to appreciate this all. In Isaiah 60, verse 18, he says, Violence shall no more be heard in thy land, wasting nor destruction within thy borders, but thou shalt call thy walls salvation, and thy gates praise. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. So again, what's set before us here in Daniel chapter 9, he's not talking about building a physical wall. He's talking about bringing the gospel. He's talking about bringing salvation that will compass about his um, people. Now, the Messiah and the prince and the sanctuary and the city really are all one and the same thing. You remember when Jesus is speaking with the disciples and they're all looking at the temple and Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. I imagine all of their backs are to Christ, and they're all looking at the temple. And he's like, um, excuse me, I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about that physical building. And it does say in John that afterward they understood. He was talking about the temple of himself. He was talking about the temple of his body. So the idea here that somebody's going to come and destroy the temple, um, it has two meanings. It has one, the destruction of the physical temple. Uh, which was already destroyed before Daniel wrote this. But there's the destruction of the temple of Christ himself. And so as we continue to read here in verse 26 of Daniel 9, it says, And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. What does it say in Isaiah 53, 8? That Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, for the iniquity of his people. So he's telling us the same thing here in Daniel chapter 9, 26. He says, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come, well, who are those people? Who's the prince that's going to come? Most people say, well, it's got to be the Romans. And the prince that's going to come, that would be Titus. He does come and he does destroy Jerusalem and the temple, no question about it. 
But the princes, they've already, the Lord has already told us who the prince is here. The prince is the Messiah. So the people of the prince that shall come, that would be the Jews, are going to destroy Christ himself. They're going to put him on the cross. They're going to nail him to the cross. And they are going to, uh, they're going to kill him. They shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with the flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant. Who's the he here? That would be God. Shall confirm the covenant, Christ himself, uh, with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. How is Christ going to do that in the midst of a week? Now, lots of ways of dividing this up, but if you just look at it in the most simplistic of ways, Wednesday is in the middle of the week, and Wednesday is the day that Christ was crucified. Who is the covenant? It's Christ himself. Isaiah um, chapter 42, I think it is, verse 6, speaks of Christ as the covenant. I'm going to turn there. I don't know that I marked that page, but it's important for us to appreciate that. Um, In Isaiah 42, look at that. In Isaiah 42, 6, he says, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. The covenant was confirmed when Christ went to the cross and was crucified. Um, So everything in here is talking about Christ. He confirms the covenant because he went to the cross and he was died. He shall cause the uh, sacrifice and oblation to cease. Why? Because Jesus was a sacrifice and God accepted that um, sacrifice, And then it speaks of the overspreading of abominations. He shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined he shall, um, shall be poured out upon the desolate. God is very patient with his people, and in 70 AD he came and he destroyed the temple and put an end to it um, of a certainty. It was finished when Christ was on the cross, and he said that. It is finished. He says that in John chapter 17, verse 4, when he's speaking to his disciples, the Lord is praying. He says, I have finished the work that you have set before me. This is before he's gone to the cross. Again, I said, spoiler alert, Daniel chapter 9. He's going to finish it. He's going to um, deal with the issue of sin and put it away. In John 19, 30, what does Jesus say when he's on the cross? It is finished. The Lord finished everything that he was going to do. And so in Daniel chapter 9, it talks about, it starts the clock when the commandment is given. And who gave the commandment? It was given by Cyrus. And Isaiah chapter 44, 150 years before Cyrus was born, God names Cyrus as the one who's going to accomplish these things, who's going to give this commandment. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, he says, Thus saith of Cyrus, uh, that saith of Cyrus, that meaning God says these things of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Who is the shepherd? It's Christ. Cyrus is a type of Christ here. And shall perform all my pleasure. There's only one person who ever performed all the pleasure of God, and that would be Christ himself. Even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. What is the foundation of the church? What is the foundation of the heavenly Jerusalem? What is the foundation of the temple? It's Christ himself. No other foundation may be laid than that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. That's 1 Corinthians 3.11. Verse 45. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed. Who is the anointed one? It's Christ. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed one, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden. 
Isaiah 42, verse 5, speaks of holding, or maybe it's verse 6, speaks of God holding Christ's right hand. I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, meaning he will enfeeble them. He will remove that which is girded about their loins in strength. He will enfeeble them, and Christ is going to come forth and do all that is required to accomplish the Lord's will, to open before him the two leaven gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Well, Cyrus did come. He did destroy the, the Babylonians, as you know. He came down the uh, Euphrates River, and the gates were open, and they entered from the river into the city and destroyed the, the city. Uh, however, the leaven gates here, again, the spiritual meaning would be the temple. Christ has opened the temple that all who believe in him um, may enter in. So, again, we can appreciate what the Lord has done here. Now, I've put, done the math here for you, halfway down on the page here, because the uh, commandment was given, and Ezra understood it and appreciated it. And so, in Ezra chapter 7, um, we can appreciate what was meant by rebuilding the city. It was that the gospel would be brought. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 9, he says here, For upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon, that would be Ezra, and on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. Verse 10, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of God and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. That is what is required to build the temple of God. That is what is required to build the city of God. This building we're in now is nothing but a bunch of um, concrete, uh, wood, and glass. It is an empty vessel, and what makes it a church is that the gospel is preached here, that Christ is presented here. And so that is what's in view here in terms of the rebuilding of the true city, is Ezra is going to come back, and he's going to set forth before them um, Moses, the, uh, meaning the, all the things that Moses taught, all the things that are written in the Law and the Prophets, which the Lord has told us back in, uh, up in uh, Luke 24 that it all testifies of him. So that is what's set, set forth here. So in verse 23, he makes reference to whosoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? What is the house of God? 1 Timothy 3.15 tells us that the church is the house of God. So Ezra's coming back to reestablish the church. So that is what is in view in Daniel chapter 9 there, and what is required to build that and put an end to sin and transgression and, re- and bring reconciliation in and everlasting righteousness, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, do the math here. The temple is destroyed in 586 B.C. It's dedicated in 515 B.C. There's 70 years difference there. Jeremiah said there was going to be 70 years, but that's not the temple that's in view. It's the one, it's the spiritual one. So Ezra arrives in 458 B.C., and you add 490 years to it, 77s, and guess what year you come up with? 33 A.D. Obviously, what's in view is the cross here. Now, if you're going to do that math on your calculator, you need to know there's no year zero. There's no year zero. There's no such thing as zero B.C. or zero A.D. It's either one B.C. or one A.D. So you've got to bump it up a year, and you'll get to 33 A.D. Now... Christ did the very thing that God said he would do here in Daniel chapter 9. He accomplished everything that God set before him to do. We can appreciate that God was, in fact, satisfied with it because he tells us that 
in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11. In Isaiah 53, verse 11, it says, Of God, looking upon his Son, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. He is satisfied by what Christ has accomplished. The penalty has been paid. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Daniel said iniquities would be dealt with. It would all be taken care of. And God was satisfied by what he accomplished. In, in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, is speaking of Christ. He says he was delivered for our offenses, or because of our offenses, and was raised again for our justification. The fact that Christ was raised for the dead is indicative that he accomplished everything that was required to pay for your and my sins. He suffered an equivalent, uh, equivalency in uh, the lake of fire, because that is the penalty. The wages of sin is death. Those that do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are cast into the lake of fire. So Christ paid an equivalency for that. When you think of the, the cross, uh, what you see, of course, is a, an incredibly uh, brutal and public form of execution. But you may have asked yourself, well, you know, I appreciate that Christ suffered greatly, but so did the people on either side of him. They were nailed to a cross, they were scourged, and they were um, hung up there to die. And so what you see is only a shadow of what Christ actually suffered. God poured out his wrath upon Christ and granted us his mercy. He did not pour out his wrath that was due us. He poured out his wrath on Christ. And we can't see or enter into how awful that was for him. We can see that he was on the cross up to the point until the Lord darkened the earth, of course. Um, but it was only a shadow of what was actually taking place in terms of the exp expiation of our sins. Um, so keep that in view here. That The uh, one thief, of course, was granted um, mercy and his sins were imputed to Christ. The other one paid for his own sins. Christ paid for the collective sins of all of the elect. So he suffered a much sorer judgment than any human has ever uh, suffered. Um, so we should appreciate that God himself was satisfied with what was accomplished on the cross there. And the Lord tells us that he dealt with it. Roman, again, uh, um, Daniel chapter 9. He accomplished it, put it away. It was dealt with. It was done with. And so we appreciate the witness of what took place. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the Lord sets before us this wonderful witness in verses 5 through 8 of 1 Corinthians 15. And it speaks of when Christ rose again the third day, that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. We know that he was seen by the women as well. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remaineth until this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of time. So after the resurrection, recall that the tomb had been sealed by the authority of the Romans. Uh, the tomb was rolled open by a, great, uh, by a great earthquake. The angels testified that he was not there. They could see that he was not there. That's why God opened the tomb. Jesus certainly didn't need that to get out of it, <laughs> his body, out of there. But it was all very public so that we can appreciate the, um, the testimony of those that saw that he was um, slain, that he died, saw him go into the tomb, and the uh, Gospels testify that the women followed and watched that process where he was laid in the tomb. 
Again, um, Caiaphas and those went to Pilate saying, we, you're going to have to seal it. He's dead, and we want to make sure he stays dead and stays in the tomb. That was all very public. And his resurrection was all very public. And if you're a Christian, you, of course, have seen him too. You have seen him as, as well. Certainly seen him in your heart, seen him in your life in terms of what he has done and he's accomplished on your behalf. Of himself, respecting the resurrection, Jesus says in John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is a person. It's it's not some methodology that we don't uh, enter into. It's not an intellectual thing, an academic thing. It is a person. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, in other words, having suffered the first death, the death of the body, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die, meaning suffer the second death. Believeth thou this? Christ is the resurrection. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, it speaks about how that when he rose from the dead, we were raised together with him and sit in heavenly places. The Christian is in two places at once. They're in the heavenly Jerusalem, and they're in this earth, uh, being lights, salt and light in this world, going out and sharing the gospel and speaking about the wonderful things that Christ has done. Now, the world does not have any hope. I mentioned that we have a lively hope. The world does not have that hope. The world looks to themselves. They look for the works of men. Um, They look for others uh, to to help them with their problems rather than looking to the true and the living God. And so as 1 Corinthians 15 continues there, the Lord talks about that. If there is no resurrection... The Christian is most miserable. It makes everything in the Bible a lie if there is no resurrection. And it says here in verse 14, verse 13, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, for your faith also is vain. The whole thing is fruitless. It's empty, it has no meaning. Verse 15, Yea, and if we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead raise not. For if the dead raise not, then is not Christ raised. Verse 17, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are dead in your sins. If Christ had not accomplished uh, the payment for sins, he would still be in the grave. But the fact that he's been risen, as I mentioned before, convinces God's satisfaction that he accomplished what was necessary to pay for our sins. So we are not yet in our sins. Our sins were imputed to him, and they were paid for. Verse 18, then they also which are fallen asleep uh, asleep in Christ are perished. In other words, everybody's dead. There is no resurrection for anybody. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So the world concocts all sorts of religious uh, methodologies by which they think they might gain heaven or gain access to God or gain entrance into paradise. But no religion has a resurrected Savior. All of the individuals uh, that other people worship um, are dead. They died and they stayed dead. They have no hope, but the saint, in fact, has hope. As our deacon read this morning, they are in bondage. Um, 
to fear of death. They are afraid to die, and they can appreciate and understand that something lies beyond the grave. Otherwise, they wouldn't create these man-made religions. Romans chapter 1, 19 and 20 talks about how that they are without excuse. God has revealed certain attributes and characteristics of himself. They are going to give an account for God. And unless they can um, uh, point to Christ as their Savior, then they are going to perish in their sins. So God has left this wonderful witness in us, as I said back in the beginning, in terms of what we read in First Peter chapter three, First Peter chapter one, verse three, that we have this lively hope that is set before us. We have the witness in our hearts, and First John chapter five speaks about having this witness. We also have this wonderful testimony that's written in the Bible that affirms the histori- the historicity of what um, Christ accomplished before us. It was all talked about um, before it happened, everything pointing to it, prophesying about it, to help us to appreciate that when it did happen, it was indeed of God that it happened. And we have this witness in our heart. And so in verse 9 of 1 John 5, he says, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. And so the witness of men would have us, would try to undermine our faith in Christ, would try to pull down Christianity, but the witness we have of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us, eternal life. This life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Christ is life, and he is the resurrection. And so we'll uh, close with that. I'll read uh, just a verse here from Hebrews chapter 13, um, a wonderful benediction about the resurrection. It says in verse 20, Now the God of peace that brought us again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We should appreciate that it is Christ who is ever working in us, not only to will and to do of his good pleasure, but to do things that are pleasing to him, things that are serving God. And that would be our prayer, that we would do that until such time as he calls us home. Amen.